0: Revelation chapter 14, and today with chapter 14, we're coming to the end of the fourth of the seven sections in the book. It's the section that began back in chapter 12. I know I sound, maybe sound endlessly repetitive, when I remind you still that each of these seven sections begins with some sort of reference to the first coming of Jesus and ends with some kind of reference to the second coming of Jesus. But just for thoroughness' sake, think about this section we've been in that began back in chapter 12. Um, In chapter 12, at the outset of this section, there was a very clear reference in that chapter to the first coming of Jesus. I mean, that chapter opened up with, remember it had two... uh, Two, two main characters, the woman and the dragon, and the dragon being Satan. And he is, he is crouching, waiting to, to try to put to death uh, Christ, uh, what it symbolized, put, put Christ to death as soon as he came. And we saw that in Matthew 2. Herod tried to kill all the male children under a certain age. So you had this, this reference to the first coming of Christ in chapter 12. Uh, and then we come to chapter 14 at the end of this section today, and what we're going to find described today in this chapter is the description of the final judgment, of the end of all things. And so cl- clearly, with this kind of structure, just as a reminder, with this kind of structure, the intention of the book of Revelation is not just to talk about the future, right? Revelation is not just to talk about the end times, as people might put it or, or just assume that it's about. Um, but instead, its purpose is to describe over and over and over again the whole period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. In other words, describe over and over again the period of time in which we're living right now, often called the church age. And so, sure, we're going to see in, in our chapter today that, that we are told what will happen in the future, um, but we'll see it here. Anytime that it's talking about the future, it's always with an intention to equip the church here and now, uh, to warn unbelievers here and now, to repent and believe. So, um, yeah, the, the book of Revelation talks about the future, but it, it has a very present focus Uh, To it. Well, anyway, we've already covered the first two chapters in this section chapters 12 and 13 and like I said what we saw in those chapters was the constant and unwavering efforts of Satan to try to defeat and conquer Christ and his church. Uh, Another distinctive we've seen in this section that we'll continue to see uh, in the second half of the book is is this emphasis on the spiritual battle that's going on behind the scenes. That gives rise to and explains a lot of the hardship against Christians that we see in the world. A lot of the bias, if there's bias in the world, bias against Christianity, bias against Christians. Why does it always lean that way? There's a spiritual battle going on that we cannot see. One one other thing that's worth reminding you of quickly before we dive into chapter 14 is the fact that as you move... Through the remaining sections of this book, especially from this point on, in the remaining sections left, they will increase in intensity. Uh, and what I mean by that is, I told you that. What defines a section is like you, 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 it begins with some reference to the first coming, and toward the end, it's some reference to the second coming. As you move later into these later sections, it's going to increase in, in intensity in this sense that there's going to be more and more and more focus on the second coming and the end of all things more than on the first coming uh, and the, the final judgment, the end of all things. Well, anyway. Chapter today is chapter 14. Maybe you were able to read it ahead of time. I always try to remind you of that. You'll always get more out of it if you read it ahead of time. That's not only true for here, but Pastor Brian's preaching in the next hour. You know, on Sunday mornings, he's preaching through John. Sunday evenings, it's Genesis. He's moving straight through both of them. You kind of know where he left off this week. You can read ahead of time for the coming week. But Revelation 14, let's read it, and uh, then we'll dive into it. John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunder. And uh, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. For they are blameless. And then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, the second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who had authority over the fire... And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. All right, let's pray. Lord, um, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. It's, um, I, I, we ask this routinely. Clear is not always as apparent in some places as it is in others. And this, this is a passage that is not always uh, clear. It takes some careful thought. So I pray that you would give us eyes to see. The truth in these words, and give us minds to understand it clearly. Would you give us hearts to embrace it, and by embracing, I mean, at the very least, be arrested by it, and 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 see its importance, and not be um, swayed and influenced by lesser things. And we give us wills to obey the admonitions you bring to us here. Give me the help that I need to teach, and please give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you can see, just in in the way we read it, you can see it literally on the pages in your Bible that this passage very clearly and neatly falls into three different sections uh, or scenes, and that's how we're going to think through it. So if you're taking notes, here's what we'll consider. In that first scene, verses 1 through 5, we'll see the redeemed. The redeemed. It opens with a focus on... The Lord and the 144,000, which we met for the first time in chapter 7. Again, Revelation is a cyclical book. We say them again and again and again. So, the redeemed in verses 1 through 5, then in verses 6 through 13, uh, we need to consider the warning that we find in that second scene. The warning. Uh, three angels deliver three messages, and there's this exhortation or warning given to the people of God. And then finally, Verses 14 to 20, we'll look at the judgment of both the righteous and the unrighteous. The final judgment. All right. Let's dive into it and think about those opening verses and the picture of the redeemed that we find there. So if you were here, as we studied through chapters 12 and 13, which again were two chapters that were devoted almost solely to to describing the opposition of Satan against Christ, the opposition opposition of Satan against his church and the tools that Satan has at his disposal by which to oppress the church. We saw two beasts. The first beast arising out of the sea was oppressive governments who oppressed the church. The the second beast arising out of the earth was represented, uh, not oppressive governments, but um, uh, deceptive philosophies, deceptive ways of thinking to deceive the church and thereby turn them away from Christ and if you were here for all that I missed two chapters just almost unendingly focusing on that kind of thing it's really a welcome sight then to open this chapter and the first thing you see is the Lamb of God standing there I'll read verse 1 again then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb this chapter began with the crouching dragon and it ends with the Lamb standing all right uh, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. It, it, it's presented to us as a scene in heaven uh, because of that reference there to Mount Zion. I looked and behold on Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion could just be a reference to Jerusalem. But very often in the New Testament, Mount Zion is, re- is presented to us as, as a heavenly place. Just one example, Hebrews twelve twenty-two. But you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay? And so for two chapters we've been inundated with plans and schemes of, of Satan against Christ and against his church. but before this section is complete, the revelation brings to us this scene in heaven. And what does John see first? He sees the lamb standing. And, and that he is standing communicates that he is victorious despite earthly present uh, appearances. Um, it, it reminds me of Acts chapter 7, right when when, when Stephen was being stoned to death as the first Christian martyr, it says at the end of Acts chapter 7 that as Stephen was dying, as he was laying there being stoned to death, it says that Stephen, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So he's standing here in verse 1 again. And as the chapter continues... It, it will become clear that he's standing there to put an end to the battle, to put an end to the, to the appearance of, of success of Satan and his, and his schemes. We'll come back to that. But standing with him, verse 1 says, are 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. As I said earlier, we, we came across this number and this group of people um, already back in chapter 7. And we argued there um, that that number, 144,000, like almost every number in the book of Revelation, um, is, is, is a symbolic number. It's pointing beyond itself to another reality. Uh, and it's, what, is it, what is it symbolic of? Of all the redeemed. It's, uh, everything is in a multiple of three or seven or twelve and this is, this is a whole bunch of twelves, 144,000. It's, it's, it's almost uh, it's representing completeness of, of all. And that, w- the way we saw that in chapter 7 was this, this 144,000 was also in chapter 7 described as a multitude that no one could number from every nation and tribe and people and language. And so if that was right then, then we should expect to see the same here. And I think that's exactly what we see here. Down at the end of verse 3, uh, the 144,000 is explicitly said to represent those, quote, who had been redeemed from the earth. And verse 4, will describe this 144,000 as those who follow the Lamb and have been redeemed from mankind. Don't, don't forget also um, about another affirmation of this in verse one itself, that we pointed out last week, where these one hundred and forty-four thousand are said to have the Lord's name written on their foreheads. Remember, last week we saw that from chapter thirteen, the where the marking uh, or or naming on the forehead re- represents belonging to. We said that in 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 terms of what is the mark of the beast that are written on people's foreheads, and the last verse of chapter thirteen. No, not excuse me, uh, verse sixteen of, of chapter thirteen. Uh, the mark of the beast was on their right hand or on the forehead and, uh, and, and, and it, it, that indicated belonging to Satan because Satan is behind the beast belonging to Satan just like Jesus told the Pharisees in John 8 44 you are of your father the devil so it's just an unbeliever and here by contrast those who have uh, the name of the lamb and the name of God the father on their foreheads belong to him and so we put all this together and right off the bat in verse 1 we have a picture of Jesus standing with all of his people and I'll add this qualifier all of his people who are in heaven at this point because it's a scene in heaven um, and, and, and if, if, it, if it represents all the redeemed in their uttermost totality then you're going to have to do some funky time travel things within this chapter. So I take it as This is Jesus with all of his redeemed who are in heaven at this point. Now, before we move to the second scene in the chapter, we don't need to miss the the, the description uh, of the redeemed in these early verses. Obviously, they're presented in verse 1 as standing with the Lord Jesus. But in verses 2 through 5, there are three other major descriptions of the redeemed here. And the first description I think we see is that they are joyful, exuberantly joyful in the presence of the Lord. Um, and and I, I use exuberantly for a reason. Exuberantly joyful. How so? Because in verse 2, in verse, in verse 2, John, in verse 1, he sees the redeemed. In verse 2, he hears the sound of the redeemed. And, and how, does it, how is, this, this, how is the, the sound described in verse 2? Like the roar of many waters. Like the sound of th- uh, loud thunder. Like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. That is not saying we're going to play harps in heaven. We might. But again, these are but what I'm saying is these are comparisons. Like, like, like. OK? But what are these comparisons conveying? The fact that I think it's funny that I, I, don't, I would never put roaring. Thundering harps, in the same uh, in the same description. Well, what it what? So what is that communicating? I, in that day, songs with harps right would have been a joyful sound, and loud thundering is exuberance. It's exuberant joy. It's the and, 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 and what else, What other evidence do we have of that? Because in verse three, they're also singing a song. And they're singing in verse 3 a song that no one could learn except the 144,000 who have been redeemed for the earth. They're, they're, they're exuberantly, joyfully singing the song of salvation. Um, the song of redemption. No one else but the redeemed can sing that song. Or know that song. I, this, if, if I've, I'm reading this and what does it speak to me? And I, if it speaks to me, I assume it speaks to you as well. This is, I believe... I read this, it's an indictment of the weakness of our flesh. It's an indictment of the weakness of our love for Christ. It's an indictment of the weakness of our understanding of what we have been given freely in Christ. And how undeserving we are to receive it. When we are unmoved by the message of the gospel. We're unmoved by the knowledge of our salvation. We should be admonished by this scene in heaven that, yeah, sure, there... You know, you say, well, they, yeah, of course they are. They're in heaven. They're rejoicing in the presence of the Lord in heaven. But I would remind you, as soon as that comes to your mind, that the apostle Peter, who, who faced persecution unspeakable in his, and eventually martyred him in his life, said in 1 Peter 1.8, of believers on the earth, beleaguered just as he was, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I just pray that He would make us joyful people like this in Him here and now. But the discre- second description we see of the redeemed is that they were faithful to the Lord. Uh, they were they were faithful to the Lord. Where do we see this? In two descriptions in verses four and five. Now, this is, these are the two that may, uh, that may be the most misunderstood or scratch your head kind of verses. The first part of verse four describes these as the redeemed as those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. What in the world? I mean, taken literally, it would mean no women are among these uh, one hundred and forty four thousand and certainly no married people are among this uh, this hundred and forty four thousand but as you might anticipate, I don 't believe this is to be taken literally uh, but figuratively for a number of reasons, one because. If there's no married people, marriage marriage in Scripture is the very picture of Christ and the church. Okay? So, come on now. But another reason is because this same imagery is used elsewhere in the the New Testament to represent faithfulness to Christ. Let's give you an example. 2 Corinthians 11.2. For I, Paul says to the Corinthian church, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And what does Paul mean by that in 2 Corinthians eleven two, 2? In the very next verse, he says what he was concerned with. He was concerned that they were being led astray from pure devotion to Christ. So this imagery of being a pure virgin has to do with pure devotion and faithfulness to Christ. And add to that the second description in verse 5, uh, where John says of the redeemed, In their mouth no lie was found, for they were blameless. Well, could mean that you've never told a lie. But it, based on this, how this language was often used, this the, no lie, based on how that language is used in the Old Testament, um, it seems to, to it would mean that there, it has to do with devotion to idols, uh, is, is specifically referred to as lying. Let me give you just two or three examples. In Isaiah 44:20, Isaiah chapter 44:20, and it's a great passage on the folly of idolatry. In Isaiah 44, Isaiah says of the idolater, in Isaiah 44:20, the idolater feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? The lie in his hand is the idol. In Hosea 11.2, the Lord says about Israel, The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. That's what Israel was doing, burning, worshiping idols, sacrificing to idols. Eight verses later, in verse 10, the Lord says, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. The house of Israel with deceit. Finally, in Psalm 4-2, King David says to the people, how long will you seek after lies? Verse 5, he tells them, offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. The clear implication is they they were seeking after idols when they were seeking after lies. And and hence, they were trusting and sacrificing to them. So when Revelation 14.5 says of the redeemed, in their mouth no lie was found, I take it as another description of pure devotion and faithfulness to Christ and not to any idols. And that is all the more significant in light of verse 9 in this chapter when when it, we'll say more about it in a minute, but it's talking about Babylon which in revelation babylon represents evil seduction of the things of the earth constantly tempting to draw people away from faithfulness to Christ or from Christ altogether so the redeemed are here are presented as those who are not only exuberantly joyful but devotedly faithful and i believe the third description in these early verses of the redeemed is that they are perseveringly obedient perseveringly obedient The first part of verse 5 simply says, It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's not hard to understand. Jesus said in John 10, My sheep know my voice and they follow me. Jesus said in Luke 9, To follow Him involves denying yourself and taking up your cross daily. And the redeemed follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The Lamb went through death into resurrection. The redeemed follow that same path. These descriptions are also an exhortation to us because through repentance and faith in Christ, we are among the 144,000. We are the redeemed. And these are things that ought to characterize us exuberantly joyful, devotedly faithful, perseveringly obedient. But we need to press on in the passage and we we get ready to to move into the next uh, scene here. Uh, We need to remember that this opening scene of the 144,000 is a scene in heaven. And what we're going to see in the next scene reveals that there are still some believers on the earth. Uh, some believers who are still struggling and struggling to persevere, not yet in heaven. That's why I said that this, this, this 144,000 is, is almost all. All the redeemed who are in heaven already with the Lord. But I believe this scene in heaven is just before the return of Christ. Just before. This will become clear as we move into the chap- later in the chapter. But the clear... So you have most believers already in, with the Lord in heaven, some believers still on earth, and it is just before Jesus comes back. It's just before the second coming. And uh, the clear teaching of the New Testament is that when Christ returns, He will be coming with His saints... As he comes for his saints. He comes with them as well as for them. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 talks about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. 1 Thessalonians 3.13. One chapter later in 1 Thessalonians 4.14 tells us that when Jesus comes, uh, that's that famous passage where the trumpet of, the God, trumpet of God will sound and, you know, about the second coming, when he comes for his saints, 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have already died and gone to be with the Lord. That's the situation I believe we find ourselves here in Revelation 14. There's already a heaven full of the redeemed, but the time is now on the cusp of the second coming to gather the rest of the people. And what we see And we'll see that clear as we move to the second scene. The warning that we find here announced through three angels, verses 6 through 13. So, like I said, in this section there are three different angels who give three different announcements, and these announcements herald the imminent return and the victory of Christ. And notice how, just interestingly, how John moves us a little lower. Um, The opening scene was in heaven, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, But... Verse 6 says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, overhead. He actually uses the Greek word for middle heaven, middle heaven, which just means the sky, the sky, not heaven. It's like this angel has come down a bit. These, these, These announcements are made just outside of heaven because of what is imminently coming. These are, these are announcements directed toward the earth. Three angels will come. The first will proclaim the victory of God over his enemies. The second will proclaim the judgment against Satan and his schemes. The third will proclaim judgment against those who followed Satan and his schemes. And these will be followed by a good and needed warning to the church. Let's consider these quickly. The first angel says in verse 7, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, in the springs of water, fear God alone, give God alone glory, worship Him alone. And notice in verse six, it is only through this eternal gospel that anyone can give God the glory that He is due by, by by repentance and faith. It's why John says in John five, you cannot honor the Father if you don't honor the Son. So this is a I think this is a warning issue to unbelievers, and He gives two reasons why He's warning them because He's the God is the creator of all things. By virtue of being creator, He he is owed worship. He he, he created heaven and earth, made heaven and earth. But also, He's the judge of all things. The hour of His judgment has come. And they're about to see that He alone is victorious. Notice also verse 6 says that this warning is given to those who dwell on earth. ESV says dwell on earth. I think the NIV says those who live on earth. The Greek word John uses here literally means those who sit on earth. They, they sit there. Uh, William Hendrickson in his commentary, More Than Conquerors, which I commend to you. It's a very accessible commentary on the book of Revelation. More Than Conquerors, William Hendrickson. About ten bucks also. Here's what he says about this, they sit on earth. That characterizes men in general on the eve of the judgment. They sit on the earth. They're easygoing, indifferent, unconcerned, listless, and careless. Think of an artist who found a convenient spot on the top of an ocean rock from which to paint the beauty of the village and its surroundings. He's altogether unaware of the fact that the returning tide is surging about the base of the rock. So absorbed is he in his his painting that he pays no attention to the warning voices. He just sits and sits, absorbed in his painting. By and by, the waves will bury him. Similarly, just before the final judgment, people in general will be fascinated with earthly charms to such an extent that they will not realize that judgment is creeping upon them, coming closer and closer. They are unconscious of their peril until it is too late. And he's there echoing Jesus' own words in Luke 17. They sit on the earth. But the angel here is is warning in verse 7 that judgment is surely coming and soon. And to that end, the second angel says in verse 8, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. We met two beasts in the last chapter. The first persecutes the church, the second deceives the church. Babylon is another new character here. Um and as I said earlier, Babylon, in my estimation, represents the, just any evil seduction or, or temptation of the things of the earth. Anything that draws people away from Christ in a tempting, seductive way. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it here because Babylon is going to get a whole lot more focus and attention in verses 17-19. to 19. But it's clear that judgment is coming on the world, that judgment is coming on all its false gods, all its false worship, and then the third angel in verse 9 announces, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of God's wrath. It isn't just Satan who's judged, but all who were deceived by him, all who belong to him, and gladly so. And then there's this interesting contrast in verses 11 and 13. There's a contrast between the, 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 the end of the wicked... And the end of the righteous. Verse 11 says that for the wicked, they have no rest day or night. That's part of the misery of hell. There's no rest there. But verse 13 says that for the righteous, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds following. Rest for the righteous, no rest for the wicked. And right between those two verses, in view of the consummation of all things that is about to take place, verse 12 issues this warning to believers. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and, of the, and their faith in the Lord Jesus. That's just an admonition to persevere. The implicit warning, in, in light of the context in which this is said, The implicit warning is not to be deceived, not to be taken in by the the, the pleasures and the treasures of the world. The reward it's implying for the persevering church is soon coming. And that brings us to the final scene where the, the finality of all things commences. And here we see the return of Christ. It's set forth vividly in terms of gathering and rewarding of all believers and in terms of gathering and judgment of all unbelievers. We need to see that quickly. The judgment. So verse 14 says, then I looked and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. That is clearly the Lord Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man. And this is clearly his second coming. Because well, he's seated on the cloud and Jesus himself said his coming would be on the clouds of heaven. Verse 14 says he has two things. His, one, he has a crown on his head. Emphasizing his rule over all that is. All authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to him. A crown on his head. The second thing he has is a sharp sickle in his hand. And as he returns, he's going to distinguish among people. To bring reward to His people and condemnation to those who are not. This is not a new idea in Revelation. You don't have to come to Revelation to find this. Jesus Himself said in Matthew 25, verses 31 and 32, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, hence the crown. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, And he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Obviously, that's mixing the metaphor, but hence the sickle. In keeping with the sickle metaphor, by the way, Jesus did say in Matthew 13 that weeds will grow up with the wheat. And, you know, they will be separated at the judgment. Put simply, what I, think we, what, what I think we find for the rest of this chapter is in verses 15 and 16, I believe that represents the gathering of all believers for their salvation. Because um, what is reaped there is referred to as the harvest of the earth. Now, we're going to see... I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll say a bit more about this in just a minute. But the harvest of the earth is, is not to be overlooked here. The harvest is routinely used in the, in the New Testament to talk about believers. Matthew 9, 37 and 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. His harvest. Now, what I need to say about that is this same language of harvest is going to be used in the next judgment just a few verses later. But what what is strikingly different about them, the second harvest is going to come with much more description and description that is clearly language of condemnation. So notably absent from the first harvest. So I I take it to be believers in the first harvest. Um, So in verses 15 and 16, it's the gathering of believers at the second coming of Christ to receive their reward in Him. Notice how all of this is just it's happening all at once with the second coming, and that's the judgment. But clearly, in verses 17 through the end of the chapter, 17 to 20, it describes the judgment of God coming down on unbelievers at the second coming. And you especially see the language of condemnation in verses 19 and 20. The winepress of the wrath of God. It, that's a common image in the Old Testament. Uh, for, the, for God's wrath We don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 63, verses two and three. Joel 3:13 3, talks about God's wrath in terms of being a wine press. And the descriptions here of the wrath is pretty graphic. Verse 20. It's pretty graphic. It talks about the blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. That might not hit you because we don't... We're like, what in the world is a stadia? 1,600 stadia is about 200 miles. Nobody's going to be able to say, though, as graphic as that is, nobody's going to be able to say on that day that God's judgments were wrong. Romans 3.19 says that every mouth will be stopped when we are held accountable to God. So this is a description of the end of all things. And we're only in chapter 14. In reality, the the description of the end of all things is going to get more and more descriptive as we move later into the book. As we move into the later sections of the book. Both in terms of the reward for the righteous as well as the recompense for the wicked. It is sobering for those who oppose the Lord. But for those in the Lord, what do you take away from this chapter? Just remember that Verse 13 promises that we will find rest from all our labors. And verse 3 says we'll be singing a song that no one else can learn. Exuberantly joyfully. Just a wonderful day to look forward to to those who are in the Lord. Trusting completely in the death of Jesus in our place and His resurrection and striving daily to walk in ways that please Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for um, this... This word, I, I pray that um, as we sit here in this moment, we have a clearer understanding of what you've told us in Revelation 14 than perhaps when we, when we came and when we started. And I don't ever want to, Lord, I don't ever want to study this just so we can say, Well, I understand Revelation 14 better, I understand the Bible better. I, I desire that that understanding by the help of the Holy Spirit would change us. That's why I ask you, Lord, that don't just give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand, but hearts to embrace, wills to obey. I pray that, um, I I do pray that uh, you would do that for us, again, from this passage. and uh, I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.